Welcome to the British History Podcast. My name is Jamie. Today we are beginning the Staffordshire Horde Project, which is being brought to you thanks to the cooperation of the Potteries Museum in Stoke-on-Trent and the Birmingham Museum and Art Gallery. You can learn more about these two remarkable museums at stokemuseums.org.uk slash PMAG and at bamg.org.uk. That's bmag.org.uk. Links are also available on my site, thebritishhistorypodcast.com. Additionally, I'd like to thank member Rick Smith of the Wilkes Partnership for his considerable assistance in this matter. Now, as you probably know, I was in England recently, viewing the hoard and speaking with experts about the importance of the find and the way it was discovered and how it's being preserved. And we'll be getting to those interviews soon. But before we do, I think it's best that we place all this material in context. It's July 5th, 2009, and veteran metal detectorist Terry Herbert is methodically pacing through the field near Hammerwich Village in Staffordshire just a short walk from the old Roman road now known as Watling Street. He slowly swung his metal detector in front of him as he made his way through the field. This wasn't Terry's first trip to the field. Only a week earlier, he had visited the site and found nothing of worth despite spending half the day combing through the farmland. But this time was different. It was only 15 minutes until his metal detector gave off a familiar beep. There, hidden under mere plow soil, was a bit of twisted metal. At first he thought it was brass, but upon closer inspection, Terry realized that he was holding gold. He couldn't have known this at the time, but this was gold that hadn't been touched by anyone for approximately 1,400 years. He moved a little further down, and his metal detector went off again, and again, and again. And with each beep, more gold and garnet objects were being unearthed. Things continued this way until about 3 p.m., at which point Terry decided to show the landowner, Fred Johnson, what he had managed to discover. As Terry walked to Fred's home, his mind must have been racing with the possibilities, and also questions. A major question that might have occurred to him, and could well be running through your head right now, is why did these objects stay hidden for so long? Some of these objects lay right on the surface, and this wasn't ground that had been left alone for centuries. It wasn't plowed as diligently as some other fields, that's true, but it was intermittently farmed. So shouldn't these objects that were clearly right below the surface have been found by now? That's one of the many questions that makes this story so engaging. Now apparently Fred wasn't as excited about the find as Terry. But later on, he began to realize the importance of the objects that were being dug up. So Terry continued to search for a couple more hours, and eventually called it a day with around 60 artifacts discovered, including the iconic folded cross and the golden bar with a Latin inscription on the front and back. Terry returned to the site over the following four days, still finding artifact after artifact in Farmer Johnson's field, sometimes even in sites that he had already dug up. The objects were that densely packed. The scene itself belongs in a film. Terry, alone in the field with his metal detector, with thunderstorms rolling in and out of the Staffordshire Hills, all while he unearths objects that date back to the kingdom of Mercia. And these objects were clearly quite valuable. So what if someone started asking questions? 
After all, he had been out in the same field for five days in a row by this point, despite the foul weather and thunderstorms. He had been trying to keep this secret, but surely someone was going to notice. And it might not be the right kind of people. After all, while Terry operated within the law, he couldn't trust that everyone else had his same sense of right and wrong. It's all very Indiana Jones, isn't it? And the fear is that there might be a Belloc out there as well. And if you think that Terry's fears were unfounded, consider this. The hoard has been valued at £3,285,000. For my American listeners, that's approximately $5.3 million. Wouldn't that tempt you to, how did he put it, be a shadowy reflection of Indiana Jones? I mean, I don't know how much that South American idol was worth in Raiders of the Lost Ark, but my guess is that it probably was worth less than $5.3 million. But Terry is a good man, and he did the right thing. And as a result, he and Fred are now millionaires thanks to this find. That might surprise you since you may have heard that buried treasure belongs to the crown. Well, that's true, but there's an interesting scheme in British law called the Treasures Act, and it's something that you might not be familiar with, but we owe a great deal of discoveries to its passage, so I thought I'd give you a short explanation. Essentially, what it does is provide incentive to metal detectorists to look for our buried past, and also does a great job of ensuring that the treasures that are found are not hoarded, melted down, or sold on the black market. So if you're out there with your metal detector like Terry and you find something, here's what you need to know. First, you need to have permission to go treasure hunting on someone else's land. But that's a bit obvious. Second, you're required to report all suspected treasure to the local liaison officer, at which point a study will be conducted to determine if it is treasure. And there are specific rules for figuring that out. Things get quite interesting if it is declared treasure. At that point, it's considered the property of the crown, and a further study is carried out to determine the artifact's value. Then the local and national museums are given the opportunity to purchase it. If they are interested, the museum raises the funds and pays the crown the full market value. The crown then, in turn, splits the full market value evenly between the finder of the treasure and the landowner. So in essence, what's really happening is the museum is splitting the full market value between the finder of the treasure and the landowner. However, if the museum is not interested in purchasing the artifact, which often happens, then the object is returned to the finder. And of course, there are penalties for not reporting buried treasure. Basically, if you find something that looks valuable, you probably should let a liaison officer know, just to be safe. And besides, maybe you'll end up famous like Terry. Anyway, so after five days of digging, Terry had his cousin contact the Fines Liaison Officer at Birmingham Museum. The liaison drove straight out to see Terry, whereupon he saw a box filled with Anglo-Saxon gold. It must have been a jaw-dropping experience, only to be surpassed by discovering that he was looking at just one-fifth of what Terry had found in the field. This was groundbreaking, and the liaison knew it. Before long, the government became involved, and an incredible dig took place under strict secrecy, in unpleasant weather, and with all present aware that time was a factor in this process. In the end, over 3,500 items would be found, and the date would be tentatively set somewhere in the 7th or 8th century. That means that this find is close from the time of King Redwald, 
who is sometimes associated with Sutton Hoo, the other major Anglo-Saxon dig. And even more exciting is the fact that it might be from a time close to the reign of King Penda, the great pagan Anglo-Saxon king in England, and a powerhouse of his time. Now to be fair, current thinking is that this find was buried after Penda's death, and might have been buried during the reign of his son, Wulfhair. And studies are still being carried out, and they will continue for many years. But something that has gripped my imagination is the question of whether or not this find, this massive hoard of gold that seems to harken back to the tales of wealth that we hear of in Beowulf, well, might it somehow be connected to that legendary pagan king of Mercia? Might it somehow be connected to Penda? Penda ruled over the kingdom of Mercia, which is generally the area that we now refer to as the Midlands. He ruled from about 626 to 655, and during his reign, he saw his kingdom rise to the dominant force in the land, and provided the groundwork for Offa's later successes. But what makes Penda so intriguing is the fact that in a time of massive conversion to Christianity, he was a holdout, and a violent one, and he seemed completely at home with the shifting alliances of the time. We'll get more into it when we get to his story in full, but Penda allied with a Christian king of the British kingdom of Gwynedd, a man by the name of Cadwallon, and with him they fought against the most powerful king in Britain, Edwin of Northumbria. And they were victorious in battle at Hatfield Chase, and King Edwin was killed, and at some point, Penda also had Edwin's son and heir killed. Following their victory, we're told they went on to ravage Northumbria, and from the sketchy records we have, it seems that it is possible that the Mercians under Penda also burned down a church while they were up there. A few years later, Penda again went to war, this time against the East Angles. There he killed both their king, Egric, and their former king, Sigebert. Several years after that, Penda again fought the Northumbrians, this time killing their king, Oswald, and once again, in this battle, it seems like he was allied with the British. By this point, Penda was easily the most powerful Mercian king in their history, and quite possibly the most powerful king in England. He went on to drive the West Saxon king out of power, due to the fact that the West Saxon king didn't have an adequate respect for the in-laws. You see, he was married to Penda's sister. He later killed the king of East Anglia, and he repeatedly attacked Northumbria and, we're told, ravaged the land with his conquest and burned down holy sites such as churches. Penda's final war was against Bernicia, where he brought with him a variety of allies, including the East Angles and the Britons of Gwynedd. Fearing this great host brought against him, Oswiu, king of Bernicia, tried to buy peace with an enormous tribute. Penda refused to stand his armies down, though it isn't clear whether or not the treasure was returned. It's also not clear what followed, but it seems that perhaps Penda's allies were unwilling to fight and might have been deserting. Penda attempted to pull his army back to Mercia, but before he got there, he was caught by Oswiu's forces. He was defeated and killed. Bede also tells us that almost all of Penda's 30 commanders were slain as well. The image that we get of Penda is that he was a warlord, first and foremost, and that he was powerful, and, as you probably picked up from that brief summary, that he had access to incredible wealth. And as we talk about the Horde, you'll hear over and over again about the incredible scale of this find, 
By way of comparison, let's look at Sutton Hoo. The famous ship burial of Sutton Hoo is often spoke about in the same breath as King Redwald of East Anglia. Why? Well, it isn't because his name was engraved on his helmet or anything like that. Rather, it's largely because of the majesty of the objects with which he was buried. Chief among them is his sword. The pommel of the sword is magnificent, with this gorgeous garnet cloisonné. As you shine a light on it, the gems sparkle brilliantly as a result of the incredibly fine detail and gold-foiled backing. It really is something to behold. And upon seeing this, people have often thought that this must be the possession of a great king, and given the area and the date at which it can be traced to, many point to Redwald. But consider this. There's only one pommel like this buried at Sutton Hoo. The Staffordshire Horde has 90 of them. And they were just as intricately designed. 90. And what's really exciting about this horde is that they show wear. These were war swords, and they were actually used. So the question is, whose were they, and why were they buried? Were they the weapons of some of the kings and war bands that were defeated by Mercia? Were they a bribe similar to Oswiu's attempted tribute? Well, studies are going to be carried out for decades trying to answer some of these questions. But even now, we're discovering things that help shed some new light on Anglo-Saxon England. And so over the next several weeks, you're going to be hearing from experts who are intimately familiar with the Horde, and we'll learn more about what this incredible find has to share with us, and how it's being dealt with and preserved for future generations. Again, I would like to thank the Potteries Museum and the Birmingham Museum and Art Gallery, and if you'd like to do a little self-directed study and learn more about the Staffordshire Horde, you can go to www.staffordshirehorde.org.uk and have a look through their site. There, you're going to see a lot of the iconic images, and you're going to get updates on new events and where the Horde is being kept. There's also a donation button there, so if you'd like to contribute to the studies that are being performed, and also contribute to the conservation of these incredible objects, you can do so there. Again, that's staffordshirehorde.org.uk. Now, as always, if you have any questions, comments, or concerns, you can reach me at thebritishhistorypodcast at gmail.com. You can also go over to our website. We're at thebritishhistorypodcast.com. And you can join us at Facebook. Just go to facebook.com slash britishhistory or head over to Twitter. We're at British Podcast. And you can also join the forums. Just go to our website and click on Get Involved and click Forums. All right. Thanks for listening.